welcome to ACA Media's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I'm Taylor Nygaard, and I'll be moderating and participating in this episode on ethics. We're very thankful to be part of the ACA Media podcast sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. The Talking Television podcast series started in summer 2020 under the title Talking Television in a Pandemic, inspired by the desire to explore television's role in mediating the intersecting pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. In the light of these and other ongoing crises, a new season of Talking Television started this past fall. We continue to bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk together about how television across all its forms from network and cable to streaming and online TV and how television studies from work on production to text to reception may best speak to these peculiar and surreal times. Thus far in our latest installment of the series, we've tackled topics of politics, tactics, economics, optics, aesthetics, and publics. This episode, as I said, will be focused on ethics. We'll explore issues regarding television's moral principles and ethical stakes. How should television frame the pandemic in future programming, both fictional and non-fictional, what ethical practices should TV employ in depicting the pandemic, such as mask use or social distancing? How should the news frame images of racial violence, especially when these images exist both in relation to and against the virality of amateur video? What is the role of free speech in a fragmented television landscape that often acts contrary to the established information and facts? What responsibilities do media institutions, including networks, studios, streaming services, and social media platforms, have in protecting speech while working in the public interest? What are the values embedded in woke television? How sincerely should audiences take the attempts of television, including actors, studios, networks, series, and corporate sponsors and platforms who brand themselves as ethical? What ethical responsibilities do audiences have in this moment of crisis? If watching television has become a civic duty over the past year, how should our viewing habits change as we enter a post-pandemic world? We will discuss these questions and more with our great group of participants. We have joining us today, Heather Hendershot, professor of film and media at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Hello, nice to be here. We have Jory Lagerway, Associate Professor in Television Studies in the School of English, Drama, and Film at University College Dublin. Hi, thanks for having me. We have Yoruba Richin, award-winning documentary filmmaker. Hi, nice to be here. We have Rebecca Wanzo, Professor and Chair of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, everyone. And we have Khadija Costley-White, Assistant Professor, soon to be Associate Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers University. Hey, everybody. And again, I'm Taylor Nygaard, Adjunct Instructor at Arizona State University. So I'd love to get this discussion started. And I want to start with this 
really interesting first question about how should television frame the pandemic and future programming, both fictional and non-fictional? What ethical practices should television employ in depicting the pandemic, such as mask use and social distancing? And I was thinking Heather and Khadija would be great if maybe you started us off because of your work on kind of right-wing media that has sort of flaunted their disregard for wanting to sort of have mass use or social distancing be represented. So how how should the media be framing responses to the pandemic? Yeah, either future or current. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess when I I was thinking initially when you asked the question about scripted television, entertainment television, which in some ways is an easier question to answer than news media, because we think about the kinds of stories we would like, say, The Handmaid's Tale to tell in the next season or, or this kind of thing versus the news where, I mean, we have no reason to be optimistic about Fox doing any better than it's doing now, right? (laughs) And, you know, CNN in many ways did a very good job over the past year. And in some, and the things that they did wrong um, over the past year were things that the print media also did wrong, for example, amplifying uh, the former president way too much. And now they are sort of de-amplifying him in a way that I think is really healthy. And obviously, any coverage of the 45th president is intertwined with pandemic coverage. The, these things are, are, you know, knit together. Yeah. Khadija, do you have thoughts? So I am, I study news a lot, but I am also a big sci-fi fan. And so, you know, I often think that sci-fi is a really great genre for trying to take up these kinds of questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I guess from the news side, I, I would say one of the things that I have been concerned about and I continue to be concerned about is, you know, and this is what people are always talking about, the fact that we often have a both sides approach to news, right? And so... You know, when you talk about mask use, we don't want to see a both sides approach to mask use, right? We don't want to see the use of masks, even in fictional media, become, I think they're going to become a political signifier, right? That if somebody does something about this particular point in time, that they will be able to signal a person's um, political beliefs based on mask use, right, at this period. But I think in news, you have to be really careful about that. You have to be really careful about making it not just a clear public health measure, but making it something that should be both sides and and discussed and treated in that way as if, as in the same ways that we treat other real dangers like climate change. So yeah, I think, you know, there's the way that it will likely be treated in the future um, and the way that it should be, which is is kind of really clearly communicating in a way that tries to um, undermine the misinformation efforts that are happening on every scale right now. Yeah. Khadija, I, I love that you mentioned science fiction just to kick it off, you know, because I think that space for allegorical examination of contemporary politics is so important. Um, I also agree with what you're saying about the news, obviously, in this both sidesism is being a sort of disaster um, in the current crisis. Um, but specifically, when you were mentioning mass, I was thinking about a recent episode of The Handmaid's Tale that was about torture, in which uh, one of the characters is waterboarded. And that episode is really complicated, and it opens with um, the character June masked. Uh, and it's like a it's like a gag, but it also you know reads as a mask, and it reads differently than it would have read when we saw characters on that show masked, you know, two years ago, three years ago, for example. Um, and then when she's waterboarded and tortured by a man who looks very much like Dick Cheney, um, 
it's very smart because it links the contemporary moment, and we know The Handmaid's Tale is taking on the contemporary moment, to the roots of some of our problems, which predate the previous presidential administration, predate the pandemic, and, you know, going back to the George W. Bush administration, the war on terror, as it were. This is Rebecca. One thing I would add, I think that when we think about television, genre is obviously not a monolith. So the things we expect of different genres vary. So we understand that hospital shows felt they had a special responsibility to think specifically to the crisis. So like Grey's Anatomy, like doubled down on everything, right? In terms of like, it's became increasingly didactic, you know, a very didactic soap opera. Um, whereas other shows, I think at some point said, okay, we're just going to embrace the fact that this is outside of time. And so like, and, and that some of what people might be looking for is to be able to do it. Because remember when we first, and maybe people still feel this way, like there was this point early on, you're watching TV and you're like, why is everyone so close? Like, just like you felt like your relationship to even things that used to give you comfort, you're like, people are too close to each other and trying to negotiate our real world in relationship to fiction. So, I mean, I think thinking about the different genre makes and how we'd approach scripted television and what it understands itself as needing to do in relationship to this, I think really matters. Yeah, Rebecca, I was really fascinated by the fact that Issa Rae said right off the bat, I will not deal with the pandemic in her show and Insecure. And I was really fascinated by her decision really early on that this was going to be something that did not happen within the show. Um, and it's been fascinating to watch shows make that decision. Yeah, Rebecca, that's such a great point. This is Heather, by the way, about um, the hospital shows realizing they need to take this on in the way that other genres might not. And, uh, you know, arguably the genre that most needs to take it on is the police procedural, right? On the other hand, I feel like at this point, police procedurals are irredeemable in a way that if we're talking about ethics in television, this genre needs to fade out or have some kind of radical reconstruction you know, which is completely unrealistic given the Dick Wolf kind of powers the the network programming schedule at this point, right? It's not going to go away, but I wish it would. Yeah, the Chicago night, right, of all three of them is still very much there. Thinking about genre, I I kept thinking about sports too um, and sports television. For I'm teaching a sports media class right now and, you know, the NBA, like, going off air was a signal for the pandemic as beginning for a lot of people. And just recently I was watching the NBA playoffs and you're seeing them relaxing their mask mandates. And now, you know, there's 15,000 fans in Madison Square Garden. And what responsibility does some live action or nonfiction television have to representing the reality, not just for national fans, but maybe global audiences too. I just wanted to, this is Yoruba. I just wanted to uh, chime in about a show that I thought actually did a, re- a pretty good job of dealing with the, of, of incorporating the pandemic into its storyline. Um, and that's Queen Sugar on the uh, Oprah network. And uh, it's Ava DuVernay's, you know, executive produced show. I think it's, this is maybe the fifth season about a black family in New Orleans. And they actually were very um, consciously, I, I don't know, I, I DVR it, so I'm not exactly sure when it premiered. Um, but I think it was sometime this early spring. And they really incorporated, you know, from the very beginning, 
of like getting on lockdown, the effect in New Orleans, uh, in Louisiana, New Orleans specifically, where the show is based, and um, and how it affected the Black community and also elderly because it's a, a very intergenerational show. So I was I was impressed with. It was one of the few shows that I've seen that really incorporated it well and looked specifically at how uh, African-Americans in the South were affected. It makes me think about this question of, I think Queen Sugar gets lumped in with a, a lot of shows about kind of what is woke television. Like would Queen Sugar in its engagement with so many social issues from police brutality earlier to the way that it's handled the pandemic and, and other subject matter. Would you qualify it, Yoruba, as kind of woke television? Does that label appeal to you or not? Or No, because how woke is being used, I think, is completely misappropriated. And it's white people, again, taking language that uh, Black people have created, and in some ways on the right, making it negative, right? And making it uh, disparaging. And then I just think it becomes meaningless. We used to say when we wanted to, you know, alert people to, you know, to, to an issue or to, you know, don't sleep, right? Don't sleep on that. Like, that's like, be aware, you know, and it's real, you know, and now it's turned into this phrase that's bandied about. Um, so I, I don't, <laughs> I don't use it. I don't like it. But I do think that Queen Sugar is a television program that does deal with a lot of issues. Um, and even a show like Blackish, and I have to be frank, I don't watch tons of, in fact, I don't really watch a lot of fictional t television. Um, I don't think I do. I used to, but I don't think I do uh, much anymore. But uh, those are shows that I that I watch. And of course they're different. Blackish is a, is a comedy and it's very funny. And Queen Sugar is a serious, dramatic, uh, intergenerational, maybe a little soap opery, um, but in, that incorporates these issues. And I think they do it because, you know, if we look at the, um, and even, you know, even other, sh other black shows, thinking specifically about black sh created shows, Scandal, even from a few years ago, we are in a stage where we have probably the most black television that we've ever had, right? Ever, ever, ever. <laughs> and, the, a lot of these creators came are uh, like a Ava, a Shonda, Rhymes, you know, are using their power to bring these issues to the forefront in a way that I think is pretty incredible. Um, and so uh, I wouldn't call it woke television. I call it television that we are now having access to uh, Black people, Black women as creators. And these are the issues that, you know, are affecting our community. Re Rebecca, do you want to maybe talk about how there's been a shift from when you were writing about sort of Black suffering and have you noticed a shift? Yeah. Uh, well, I was writing about Black suffering a very long time ago, but, um, you know, I guess when I might flip it a little bit and think, I, I've been really trying to work through the relationship between what I'd understand as socially conscious television, which has sort of a long history and like sort of social issue representation from movies of the week and things like that to why I'm unhappy if I'm watching something and it becomes increasingly didactic. Like let's take Madam Secretary, 
which wasn't the best show, but I watched it. And I, I, I you know, I don't know who else watched Madam Secretary, but, um, but there was this point where I was like, okay, they're doing like social issue of the week every week now. And I was just trying to figure out how I felt about that. Like, I, I felt like other kinds of aspects of the show in terms of character and narrative trajectory and things like that were sort of stopped, right? And so I guess I'm trying to figure out like the difference between something like Queen Sugar, which really organically, and I think has always done this, is like integrated a variety of things that are really relevant in Black folks' lives. And then shows like The Rookie right now, is whereas speaking to Heather's point, as a variety of other um, cop shows are now saying like, oh, we care about Black Lives Matter. We're, we're trying to think about police brutality. And so every week they're, they're trying to sort of give us this consciousness. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's really working. Like it seems like you're trying too hard. So I don't know what the line is in terms of artistry here, but it's an interesting question for me as we think about it. I agree um, with Garuba. I don't like woke TV. It's a pejorative. I don't, I don't think it's particularly useful as a category. But I am interested in sort of how we think about the long history of, of social issues in television media and the various ways in which it's manifesting. In response to that, like the message of the week, lesson of the week, whatever kind of didactic programming can be very, very off-putting, right? And that's, again, bringing us back to science fiction, where it can science fiction can be very heavy-handed through allegory, but not feel as didactic and like it's hitting you with a hammer, I guess, because of the different ways you can read the allegory, if that makes sense. I mean, compared to realist drama, there's just sort of more wiggle room there for instructional television, as it were. And of course, there's melodrama and soap, which has always done social issues. But I I like the way it does that, too. So it's just goes back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I feel like for me, it always comes back to like, how is power and privilege being portrayed in this in this episode? Or, you know, how is it trying to come at this idea? Um, the show, The Rookie, that's the one with the black woman who's in the FBI on CBS. Is that the Isn't right that one? the equalizer with Queen no, Latifah? That's Queen Latifah, oh. which is amazing. <laughs> say, say nothing about that show, okay? Oh, I, I will Queen watch. I, okay, okay. I will watch Queen Latifah beat up everybody every week for all time. I will, give me a middle-aged black woman kicking ass every week, and I from Jersey, nonetheless, and I am there. Okay, love the queen. Oh. <laughs> yes. But I mean, I there's this there's this show. I thought it was called the rookie. There's a show on CBS now that has a black woman who I think she's in the FBI. Oh, that show is FBI. It introduced um, a new black woman as one of the leads in August of 2020, following all of the protests and the uprisings around the country. So they keep trying to trouble her understanding of herself as racially conscious and resistant within the FBI. And so there's this constant way in which she's angry at the kind of whiteness of her coworkers and and pushing back at them, but then kind of goes into the community and they're like, you're a traitor to the race, right? And this narrative that they're trying to straddle, and it's the same narrative that they do all the time in police procedurals, where they act like they're introducing nuance and complexity to like simplistic archetypes that go out in the TV about cops and Black people. But really, like, cops get a pretty good rep all the time, right? So like, actually what they're trying to do is cast doubt on narratives that 
say that police are not actually good, right? The police should be abolished, that the police are hurting and harming Black people without um, provocation, without reason, without cause all the time, and it's abusive and needs to stop. And so their approach to complexity is like, oh, we'll show it looking like the cop is bad, but then he's good, you know, or like looking like, you know, the cop did a bad thing, but actually it was just the poor white supremacist mother who was just helping her child, you know, like, so the complexity is actually an attempt to, in fact, reframe and bolster white supremacy in a lot of ways. Um, And I think that that's a really interesting approach to, so I'm always constantly being like, okay, how are people with power being treated here? And how are people without power being treated? What comes out in the wash? And usually what comes out in the wash is the status quo, right? And that that's what's always really fascinating, even when they're trying to kind of be with the times, theoretically, right? Black woman, FBI agent, like that's with the times, but yeah, it's not at all. It's still the same stuff. I was thinking about this in relationship to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which went off the air during the pandemic. And then I think they've made public comments about having to really rethink their police comedy, which has been talked about as pretty progressive as that genre goes. But I know Jory and I in our book wrote about how some of the things you were right talking about, Khadijah, around this address of the complexity, right? Or like what happens when jokes are open for interpretation or there's all of these embedded meanings with it. So I don't know. I think that their comedy has something interesting. I don't know, Jory, if you want to add anything about that. Well, what I've been thinking about during this conversation um, is one, thank you, Yoruba, for saying that you don't watch a lot of television. It makes me feel a little bit better that I don't watch any of the shows. I don't live in this country. I don't have access to network television anymore. So, um, but what I was thinking about was, was partly this conversation about woke TV and the way very often what I think gets classed as woke TV is white television. That's like making itself feel better about whiteness. But Speaking of of police procedurals, um, Taylor, you have had this conversation before about the sort of fantasy version of that genre in an ethical mode where you have a police chief or whatever who is working with the city council to defund the police. And you have a hero who's a social worker or a mental health worker and actually demonstrating sort of different modes of, you know, work that is now done by the police, but could be much better done by by other groups of people and like turning them into heroes. But of course, Heather pointed out that Dick Wolf is in control and he's not going to do that. But um, there's always the, the fantasy of, of reimagining a genre for this particular time, which I think would be really fun. Yeah. I mean, I would like to, maybe we could put Watchmen in the conversation a little bit as a show that is sort of about the police, right? But in a speculative fiction kind of alternate worldview and is pretty smart, I thought. Hey, Yoruba, you've done documentaries that have done this work. Do you want to speak to this reimagining or retelling of, of mainstream stories? Absolutely. And, and I just want to throw in another show. Maybe I do watch a kind of <laughs> more shows than I thought. Um, but uh, I don't know if people have watched For Life which I think, I mean, it's, it uses all of the sort of tropes of the, the main character who's a former, who's in jail. He's wrongly, he's had been wrongly put in jail. He was, is a jailhouse lawyer. And he actually is like after the bad cop who got him in 
the bad prosecutor who put him in jail. And he helps these other convicts who are wrongly convicted by either corruption in the police force, uh, you know, racism. And it uses all the kind of tropes of like, in the end, everything turns out okay at the end of every episode. And like, he's the hero, but it's, it flips it on its head because it's doing it's from the perspective of uh, this, you know, person who's wrongly put in jail. So uh, I just want to throw that one in there as well. But in terms of documentary, yeah. So, you know, documentary is obviously a different, a bit of a different genre. And I would say that there has been a, a, a good tradition of documentary um, trying to get at the truth of a lot of these injustices. Here we're looking kind of at police issues and, and policing. And um, I have to say that I think the issues, some of the issues in the documentary field around this are around who's telling the story. And for a long time, it has not been us. It hasn't been people of color. It hasn't been Black folks at the helm um, of telling the story. They tell stories about us, and that has its own sets of, of issues and, and critiques that we can talk about. So one of this, I, I think you're referring to my film about Breonna Taylor, which uh, is called The Killing of Breonna Taylor, um, that I made for the New York Times uh, television series and, uh, that airs on, and it airs on Hulu. And one of the things that I am very pleased, you know, that I, when I was approached about directing this film, and this was in June, this was, you know, in the full-blown pandemic when we knew very little about what had happened to Brianna, just that she was shot in her own home by cops. And the goal was to find out what happened, why this tragedy happened. And just a little bit about framing, it wasn't like, the goal wasn't like, what happened? Why did this happen? It was, why did this tragedy happen? And that's a different way of looking at uh, framing the story. So we and we were all on board with that, that we knew that that this that it was a tragedy that she was killed, that you know the, the excuse that the cops were giving was that she had drugs or money in her apartment, which were never found. But even if it even if there were drugs or money in her apartment, it was still wrong and it was still a murder and some and these cops should be held accountable. So we were going in with that frame. And that I really shaped, think shaped how we did the story. And it's not that we did not include the cops version of events. We had to because we were trying to assess what led to this death. So framing is a big part of it in terms of how you frame these stories in documentary and who is telling the story. I think framing is is really important, but I also think about one of our other questions with beyond framing is inclusion of brutal images of violence and whether there is a sort of ethical responsibility to show or not to show kind of on television. I just want to say one quick thing because we do talk about this a lot and obviously with documentary, it, you know, it comes up all the time. Uh, I'm working on a film now for PBS for Frontline about an unsolved civil rights murder where a local NACP leader was bombed in 1967 and the autopsy pictures uh, are gruesome. And we're um, talking about, you know, how to include them, if and how to include them. And I think it's important to remember that 
Emmett Till's mother left that casket open, as we know, to show the world what happened to her son and the violence and brutality and the sickness of those people who killed her son. Rebecca here, and just to go back to that question, because I, you know, I, I think about this a lot in teaching and in writing. And so, of course, the issue with Mamie Till Bradley is that she said, you know, she, she was making that choice. It's not just it was showing him, but also representing herself, right? Like she was representing her own suffering, too, over his casket and some of the pictures that were chosen to be shown. They've also made very specific choices about um, if you go to the African-American History Museum that you're not supposed to take pictures in front of the casket, right? They're framing they're tr- trying to frame like what you do with that. Um, there have been discussions. Now there's a discussion right now, obviously, about um, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad and representations of, of violence against Black people. And then with the news, like we know that, that we feel this responsibility to witness, right? That's this part of the ethics. But we also know because there's so much scholarship on it, like the more that we are exposed or should we see these representations of violence, desensitization is a risk in various contexts or the everydayness of it. And so that's a constant balance, like how you balance out the relationship between feeling responsibility to see something, to witness something, but to know when they're constant representations of excesses that you wouldn't see with other kinds of bodies, their costs. Like, I mean, I used to write, I wrote about child murder and I will just say like, you never saw representations of violence against all these sort of little white girls that were murdered, but that were heavily um, championed in the media. And there was a lot of activism around them. So there's a way in which we understand visibility is always being salvific or, or like we hope it will be, like we hope that will be the the effects. But it's it's complicated. It's just not always sure. Um, we're just, we can't always be sure what the effects of it will be. This is Khadija. I was just going to say that um, I think part of the problem is that for whiteness, like there's kind of an impossibility for black suffering in so many ways. I mean, it's how they get to, the police get to create a narrative around Michael Brown being stronger as he gets shot, right? Like that, that is actually something that he reports that as the bullets go in his body, he gets stronger, right? And so there is this way in which the kind of white imagination of black suffering is so limited that I think the videos in certain in certain ways helps tell a story that their imagination can't fill in the gaps for. Or at least that's the that's the goal, I think, in certain ways. And I, I think for me, what I often hear the kind of two key parts of the argument, you know, is this trauma to black people and is this enjoyable for racist white people, right? And so there's this idea of pleasure and pain and like who gets pleasure from these videos being released and who gets pain from them. And I, I take those seriously, I do. But, I, you know, the news part of me is like, yeah, but you need the video, right? I mean, we're just kind of a very media-centric group of people um, in the States and I think around the world. Like people need to see something often or hear something to feel like it really happens. And and news functions in a way that is really important in that way. Um, I don't watch the videos myself. I actually can't. I think they should be treated more ethically in news. But I think their consumption and circulation is really important in terms of validating Black people, in terms of how it contributes to social movements by validating 
understanding the importance of the movement, framing how people see it, um, helping fund movements, right? Like the bail funds took off during the reporting on the responses to George Floyd's protests. And so like from a news point of view, when so often the origins of the death of a Black person is the story provided by the police officer allowing a Black girl who is standing by to tell that story through her camera, through her lens, is also to me really valid. I I, um, was going to write an op-ed about this for the New York Times a few months ago when this debate came up again um, over the, the shooting of the young man in, I believe, in Minnesota. But I have two preschoolers, so it never got done. It's like half written. But these are the kinds of things that I've been thinking about in terms of how we frame this. And I and I do think the Mamie Till approach, or the Mamie Till, let's say the Tillian analysis um, about Black suffering is actually really useful and a, and a useful exercise. Yeah, I would just add, add that, this is Yoruba, that we have known that police killings have been a part of our experience from day one, right? We've always known this. None of this has been news to us. It was, it's only when the videos starting, you know, first time I remember is with Rodney King and then the other recent videos that we started to be believed. So I agree. I think it serves, Khadija, I think it serves a really central role in, in understanding and having white people understand that this is actually real. Because I don't think that most white people believed it before it was on on video. Yeah. And what they found during the Trump years were that racist white people, like conservatives, Republicans, pretty much stayed as like racist and conservative as they were before the Trump years. But actually white, white Democrats got a bit more progressive over that time and more progressive in terms of racial attitudes, in terms of beliefs around immigration, like they got more progressive. And so I do think that there is something to say about kind of speaking to an audience that is also grappling with the state of America and the state of our democracy. Yeah. And Rebecca here, I just want to say quickly to be clear. I mean, I think there obviously the evidence important is important, but I, I do think we have to think about the proliferation and also the expectation that visibility always helps because we have seen many examples of we're watching the same video and people have completely different readings. Like, to I, you know, I still remember Tamir Rice and my mom and I, no warning, speaking of ethics, they just showed it on. This is before they started to warn us, like, this might be, might disturb you. And it was like over the holidays, I'm sitting on the couch with my mother and we just saw this child being murdered. And she said they didn't even they didn't even tell us that's what we were going to see. Like they didn't even warn us about this. And because they just, they just, they weren't even thinking about the impact of that. Um, And I, so there's something, there's something I think we do have to grapple with about back to the framing question, to framing questions, to proliferation questions, to the expectation of what it does, you know, and for whom, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's hard. No, you're, Rebecca, this is Khadija. You're absolutely right. I just want to add that part of it is like, the humanity of Black people that is at stake there, right? Like, the way that they, a Black person will get shot and they just shove a microphone in his mother's face. Like, they, the way in which white grief gets a hot, a whole lot more space than that, like a ton more space than, than the way in which Black grief is kind of from the moment the murder happens. Black grief is supposed to be available to everyone and on display. Um, and I think... You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this way that I get very angry about, again, the ethics of how these this media gets put out as if it's just something that everyone should be able to consume as if Black death is nothing. I think speaking of the circulation, sorry, this is Jory, 
of the circulation of these images and Khadija, you had mentioned earlier that they end up depicting sort of the state of, you know, America and democracy. These are globally circulated images. So, of course, they get understood really differently when they are put on Irish news, um, for example. And in some ways, um, because Ireland is a, a nation very much grappling with its whiteness and, and in a phase much earlier than America's development and still in the place where a majority of the population, perhaps, um, I, that's maybe not fair. Um, but it's still quite common for, for people to just think there aren't any people of color in Ireland. So these are the images, especially last summer, um, that got played over and over and over again and circulated along with Black Lives Matter's protests around the world, but especially in the UK, and became the way that America was understood um, and became the, the dominant image. And so America came, became the sort of exporter of racial trauma. And, and I think the way that was consumed globally is another sort of interesting question because, of course, it doesn't come with any of the consciousness of context and history from the presenters, um, you know, and very often comes with just the same sort of casual warning, like this, uh, this may be traumatic, but without the, the context, the cultural context or the history. And I, I don't really know where I'm going with that. It just it raises a different or an adjunct, I think, uh, set of, of questions when we think about this, not just as an American ph phenomenon, but as what is, in some sense, the most common element of American media that gets circulated the widest. Yeah, Heather, did you want to speak? Yeah, I was just going to kick in that these issues of framing and circulation are so important. And what you do about circulation when it just seems out of control, you know, that a video that could be properly framed on CNN or MSNBC will be framed so differently on Fox News or in a far right website. And, you know, just thinking about it historically, like that image of uh, Emmett Till and his coffin has been widely circulated over the years and was circulated at the time. But when it appeared, right wing media was mostly newsletters and radio. And newsletters couldn't afford to put images to include images very often. They were like typed, you know, and photocopied and put out in the mail and radio was image free, you know, obviously. So images of violence, of course, circulated in the 50s and 60s and 70s among the right, but it was just really different um, than today. Thinking about that too, Heather, I think about just in a fragmented, algorithmic type of viewing environment, what type of this like civic duty as a viewer? Do we have to watch television a particular way? Like uh, I've talked a lot about this, about sort of breaking out of a white liberal bubble, right? And, and watching television that isn't about who we are, right? Right. And watching television that might not match, uh, not, might not be speaking to us, but let's watch anyway, or television that falls outside of our, our taste interests or our political interests and just broadening our spectrum of what we consume as media studies scholars and as people, you know, interacting with students who have come from different backgrounds than we do and have different viewing practices. I would agree that there is a sense of a sort of civic duty and viewing as widely as possible at this point. You know, on the other hand, just like getting beyond the personal viewing habits and a kind of neoliberal response of like, what I do shapes the world to a broader picture. Like probably one of the smartest things that we could do as consumers right now is to dump our cable packages. 
you know, and not subsidize Fox News anymore. You know, because if you get cable, you are sending Fox News about a dollar fifty a month, right? And you're sending MSNBC like twenty seven cents because that's it doesn't matter what MSNBC's numbers are. That's just like the reality of the contracts they have with Fox News. And if you drop cable and find different ways to consume your media, you're no longer subsidizing Fox News. I think it's worth adding that uh, boycotting advertisers is really important. It raises vis- visibility around issues like T- Tucker Carlson, right, <laughs> and our and our concerns about him. And it also helps to stigmatize uh, mainstream advertisers so that, you know, say Taco Bell or Lexus doesn't want to be associated with right-wing speech, right? So it may help in the long run, but you have to always keep in mind that Fox gets about almost 70% of its money from these cable deals, right? And so with the advertising boycotts, we are raising visibility and doing good work, but we're really hitting at like 30% of their income. So there's just like there are bigger economic issues to thinking about our civic duty. And then there are also individual choices about what we watch and so on and how we teach what we see. And, and it's all important. Can I, Taylor, ask, this is Khadija, ask Yoruba a question, actually. Yoruba, how have you seen people respond to like your work and, you know, your, your work on kind of talking about and, and featuring and framing Black suffering, especially as a Black woman? Yeah, uh, what I've seen is that, you know, like with this, Brianna piece, which really was the where that was kind of most clear, is that there's a real hunger out there to know more information about what happened to her and also who she was as a person, because it wasn't just the suffering. And that's also what we went into. And I didn't mention that in the beginning. We wanted to tell the story of who Brianna was. And uh, it was so important when I, um, you know, interviewed the, the family and, and the friends, I understood, you know, and maybe this is obvious, but losing Brianna, it's, you're not just losing, they, you know, her mother just didn't lose a daughter, but they lost, her cousins lost a mentor. Her sister, you know, lost her, her sister. Her, you know, it reverberates throughout the community, which is why Louisville was so in such trauma, because it reverberated throughout the community, from the family throughout the community. And so we also told that it, it wasn't just, it was the story, of course, of what happened and the investigation, but it was also balanced and combined with who she was as a person. And that's the other thing that's important, is that these are people. Michael Brown was a person. George Floyd was a person. And we need to tell those stories to humanize them. So it's not just the image of the knee on the neck. And with that, I just want to say, I, I wish we could capture more, right? One of the, of the perpetrator on video. I mean, that's why I think so many of us from many different, you know, walks of life and races were like, we saw that look on Chauvin's face. It was, you know, it was the, you have to believe your eyes and to catch the perpetrator right? Can we do, figure out how to do that more? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, so often, you know, when I'm walking with my kids on a street and I'm watching my son's little legs or my daughter kind of running up or grabbing his hand, I'm constantly thinking, like, how does one tell the story of losing their child? You know, like, how does one tell the story of 
Trayvon's little legs or George Floyd singing his daughter to sleep or it amazes me that this is just, you know, watching people and, and really thinking about what it means to lose a person and everything, the years of someone's life that gets poured into someone. I think what I, we're all pointing to is just both the ethical responsibility on both sides as viewers and producers to really think about framing and as we've all kind of talked about all of these these issues. And uh, I think we need to wrap up here, but I really want to thank all of you for speaking on these really important issues. So once again, Yoruba Richin, Heather Hendershot, Jory Lagerway, Rebecca Wanzo, Khadija Costley-White, thank you for your willingness to chat today. I also want to thank the co-organizers of this podcast, Brandy Monk-Payton, Lynn Joyrich, Hunter Hargraves, and on the behalf of those co-organizers to thank all of our sponsors, SCMS, ACA Media, the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies, and the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. Many kudos go out to Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all of their help with recording and Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. Our next episode will be on the topic of academics. Given the fact that the crisis of the pandemic, as well as of political discourse, has exasperated the crisis in higher education and the crisis in the humanities, how should our field approach increasing academic precarity? As the lines between different forms of media are increasingly blurred, to what extent or not are discussions of media specificity still important? What is the value in the continued study of television and the televisual? How have the intersecting pandemics of COVID-19 and racialized violence underscored the importance of focusing on the study of television and or of broader media formations? How do we rethink the relationship between the TV scholar and the TV critic in an age of social media and the proliferation of the hot take on popular culture? How much should we as TV scholars be focused on the legitimation of our field, both within the academy and the broader public culture? How do we resist the neoliberal desire to do so? What are new questions about TV that will be important to engage through our research and teaching? What kinds of collaborations can we imagine inside and outside of the academy? We are very much interested in hearing your thoughts about these topics and what you think are the most important and interesting uses surrounding the state of television and academia. So please send in questions and thoughts via email at talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, Twitter with hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, Facebook, join the Acamedia Facebook group and then post questions. I'm Taylor Nygaard with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis, and thanks so much for listening. Please be well, stay healthy, wear a mask, and if you can, sign up for a vaccine. Mm-hmm.